We're taking a walk through the story of Jesus as it's given to us by Mark. Well, I say walk, slow amble might be more appropriate. It's the fifth sermon and we're still on chapter one. But in the last few weeks, we've had the first words Jesus speaks in the gospel. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Then we had the first thing Jesus does. He calls disciples. Jesus takes a conscious decision from the very beginning that his ministry is not going to be something he carries out alone. His mission is going to be something that he hands on. So walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he calls four fishermen who drop everything and follow him. Today we have Jesus' first visit to a synagogue and the first miracle as recorded by Mark. There are a couple of recurring features which crop up in this little section. And one of which feeds into the Taylor Malley poem. This this idea that Jesus speaks with authority. And the other is that this is a source of amazement or astonishment for those in Capernaum that day. It's a Sabbath pretty soon after Jesus called those first disciples. Jesus goes to the synagogue And in the synagogue of that setting, they didn't tend to have, say, ministers like we do. But there was a senior figure that was the leader of the synagogue, and we'll encounter one later in the gospel. But that was probably closer to our church secretary than a minister. And I can safely make that link between leader and secretary, knowing that Babs isn't going to be with us this morning. They were responsible for organising the life of the community rather than necessarily being responsible for the teaching. They would invite someone, normally a scribe, a teacher or a rabbi, someone who was seen as having some kind of expertise to deliver the teaching that day. And Jesus obviously is recognised as fitting that bill as he's invited to speak. Interestingly, we're not told anything about what he said. That's another feature of Mark. He mentions Jesus teaching a lot and he makes lots of mentions of Jesus being a teacher, but he doesn't actually include that much teaching. Mark is more interested in the reactions, that they were astonished or amazed because he speaks with authority. Then, someone with what is described as an unclean spirit bursts into the synagogue and starts shouting, What are you to us, Jesus? Nazarene! Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus barely skips a breath. Shut up and get out of him, Jesus effectively says. There's one more loud shriek, but that's what happens. The Spirit leaves. The man calms down. And again, those same ideas crop up. They're all amazed. They say to one another, what is going on here? Is this some kind of new teaching? Even the evil, he speaks even to the evil spirits with authority. Amazed. Astonished. Authority. Now, you might think that's a great review, and perhaps to some extent it was, but it's a little bit more mixed than that. 
Amazed and astonished can be a positive reaction, but not necessarily. I mean, I was amazed at scenes of Donald Trump leaving hospital this week. I was astonished by some of the things he said. I was far from impressed by them. And in Mark 6, the same words will be used to describe the reactions of those to whom Jesus preaches in Nazareth. And in that case, it certainly wasn't positive. It's also much the same with speaking of a with authority. What it means is that when Jesus speaks, he's not quoting someone else. So sometimes when I'm speaking to you, I might quote a particular theologian or a writer, or if I'm drawing in something from another field like economics or neuroscience, you know, things that fascinate me, I'll refer to an expert in that field. And that was largely how scribes and teachers taught. When explaining bits of the Torah, they would say, this rabbi says, or that writing claims that. And they rarely offered their own opinion. Jesus seems to dispense with all that. He cuts straight to his own interpretation. In fact, sometimes Jesus seems to go even further. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says several times things like, you have heard it said... And then he answers, but I say to you. So, for example, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye for a, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't take revenge. Or you have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus goes way beyond just quoting other sources, he disagrees with them. And that's what they mean by speaks with authority. To borrow from Taylor Malley, Jesus both questions authority and speaks with it. And that's even true when Jesus casts out the unclean spirit. Jesus was not the only one performing that kind of ministry in his day. Even in the Gospels themselves, we see that. Mark tells us in chapter 9 how the disciples come to Jesus one day and say they've encountered someone else who's casting out spirits and they told him to stop because he wasn't one of them. And Jesus doesn't seem that bothered. But normally it involves some kind of elaborate ritual or incantation. Not so with Jesus. He effectively just says, oh, shut up. And it happens. And interestingly, although Mark tells us this spreads Jesus' fame, it doesn't necessarily prompt faith in him. Even at the end of the story, the only person other than Jesus who knows or believes in who Jesus is, is the unclean spirit. When you come to a passage like this, there is always a potential split in the congregation. There are those who take the view that when the Gospels talk about unclean spirits, demons and so on, that it's really a mental, a psychological, or maybe even a physical illness being described. And there's something in that. The worldview of the day did attribute illness directly to unclean spirits. There are episodes such as one in Mark 9, where a boy is described as having an unclean spirit. 
and we might diagnose it as epilepsy. However, it's not always quite so neat. At the other end, there are those who go way beyond the text and give devils and the demonic far more credit than they deserve. And that has its dangers too. At one level, it can decrease human responsibility, giving us something or someone else to blame. Or at another level, as someone who occasionally battles with my own mental health, the additional burden of it being given some kind of devilish route has never really helped. In extreme cases, it has led to people who were already extremely vulnerable being subjected to spiritual abuse as people try to cast spirits that never existed out of them. But there's a problem both approaches share in common. They can keep passages like this at a comfortable distance. They can make it about someone else, that it has nothing to say to us. It's like when we read a story in the news and it shocks and appalls us, a horrific crime or something like that. And the headlines will describe the perpetrator as a monster, somehow less than human, not one of us. And it allows us to create that kind of distance between us and them. It keeps it safe from acknowledging the darker or more troubling side of ourselves or the more dark or troubling side of human potential. Because if we acknowledge them as human, what does it say about us? Occasionally I invite us to do a meditative exercise in which we visualize the scene, we try to enter the story. And one question I often ask when we do that is, where do you see yourself in this story? So place yourself in this scene. Where are you? Oh, I doubt very much whether any of us sees ourselves as the guy bursting into the synagogue shouting at Jesus. For the most part, we handle ourselves more respectfully, more respectfully and respectively. But notice something about the man in this story. Or rather, don't notice it. We know nothing about him. He could be anyone. And that's the point. Because Mark wants us to know he could be any one of us. Because we can all be held in the grip of something. It needn't be as obviously scary as we encounter here. It might all seem exceptionally normal. We can all have those stories we tell ourselves which need to be challenged. We can all have those parts of our lives which resist the voice and authority of Jesus, which don't trust the voice of Jesus. In his spiritual exercise, Ignatius of Loyola identifies three common ways which when we're challenged by the authority of Jesus, we seek to resist. 
One is that we can act like a spoiled child, that we can act really selfishly and refuse to listen to any contrary point of view. Another is like the false lover, tempted to conceal our bad motives or behaviours. And then there's an army commander, attacking us at our weakest points. And bizarrely, though we might think we want it, often in these ways, we resist the freedom we're being offered. We can be held in the grip of bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness. We can be held in the grip of shame, where we know we've done something wrong, but rather we than own it, we allow it to define us. So you made a mistake or you did a bad thing, but somehow the story is you're a failure. You're a bad person. No one would want to know you. And Jesus never addresses the man in the story. To Jesus, he's not the problem. Jesus addresses the spirit that enslaves the man, harms the man, stands in the way of the man living the life of freedom that God longed for him to have. To Jesus, it's not the host that's unclean. For the man himself, Jesus has nothing but compassion. It's the spirit Jesus calls out. And those parts of which hold us in their grip and can resist and say, what are you to us, Jesus? Are you come to destroy us? Like if we allowed Jesus to access that part of our lives, would there be any of us left? And we need to hear the answer. What are you to us, Jesus? Jesus is compassion, love, forgiveness, mercy. Jesus has come that we might be free of those things which bind us and try to keep us in their grip. Perhaps when it comes to us, we feel our God's too small to cope with it. And that's why, as we saw in our psalm, we come to see the fear of the Lord is the first sign of wisdom. That we become aware of just who God is and what he longs for us. Because that's what we need if we are to trust that voice, to speak to those parts of our lives that hold us in their grip and to hear those words, oh, shut up and leave her be. Shut up and leave him be. Because as we become aware of who God is, that he's the God who is revealed in Jesus, we become aware of how he has faced down everything that seeks to keep us from him and his love. And he's one. So what are those things that seek to keep us in their grip and stop us being free to live as God longs for us? What are those stories You've been telling yourself for way too long that have had far too much influence and ability to define you. May you know that Jesus has not come to destroy you, but to free you. That Jesus longs to meet all of that. Everything that we open to him. With compassion, love, forgiveness, mercy. 
So don't run from them. Sit with them for a moment. In the silence, bring something that's on your heart to God. Some area of freedom that you long to experience. Something that's held you in its grip for quite long enough. And it's time it was challenged. Invite Jesus into it. Hear those words. Be muzzled. Get out. And believe in them. For they come from a saviour who has won the right to both question their authority and who speaks with it too. Grace and peace to you. Amen.